It's all about acknowledging the history, living the history through it, and remembering that as the stories start to fade, we should keep them alive forever. And that's why it's on us, not just Jewish people, but as humanity as a whole, to remember these stories so they're not repeated, not against Jews and not against other groups. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we've got an episode that deals with nationality, that deals with faith, that deals with immigration, that deals with the Holocaust. I'm so excited about our guests. And in studio today, I've got senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And producer Tanya Lockett. Hi. Our first half today are two podcast hosts, which you know they're going to be good talkers already before it even starts. And these are Mariam Waba. She's an Egyptian Coptic Christian. She'll explain that in just a moment. She's a writer on the Middle East and serves as the Associate Director of Advocacy for the Philos Project, an organization devoted to fostering positive Christian engagement in the Near East. And her co-host is Adela Kohab, a Syrian-Lebanese-Mexican Jew. And she speaks at conferences and college campuses about anti-Semitism, Zionism, and human rights. Together, they have this fabulous podcast called American-ish. And I love this podcast. I love the idea of the podcast. Let's have as many American stories as we can get into the public sphere. And let's hear where everybody's from and what they bring to the American story. Here are two people who are being very generous with us and with their listeners about what they love about America, what challenges them about America. I like their idea of the uh, religious communities in America. And there's several religious communities, but they're still all America. And there's this journey that sometimes teenagers feel like they have to make of differentiation, which is, I'm not going to be just like my parents. Sometimes that goes into religion. And both of these guests are going to talk about that journey for them and where it ended up, which I think is beautiful. All right. Well, let's get started with Adela and Mariam. So the Coptic Christians are the indigenous Christians of Egypt. They have been there since the beginning of time. It was actually St. Mark the Evangelist who traveled to Alexandria somewhere between 40 and 60 AD, so very close to the death of Jesus Christ, um, and started to evangelize. And because the ancient Egyptians had these ideas of a forgiving God, an afterlife, and um, a few more uh, coincidentally uh, similar things with Christianity, a lot of the ancient Egyptians began to convert to Christianity. And at one point, Egypt was an 85% Christian nation, which always surprises people. Um, Then the Arab invasion happened and Egypt became a Muslim majority country. But to to put it in a nutshell, to use your terms, um, Copts are the indigenous Christians of Egypt. The word Coptic, in fact, is a Greek word meaning Egypt. It's or Egyptian. The it's what the ancient Greeks used to call the ancient Egyptians. Um, they've been there for centuries. My community has survived uh, generations of massacres and persecutions, and it's really a story of survival. Um, the Coptic community today is still uh, surviving at around 10 million Copts still living in Egypt, making up around 10 percent of the Egyptian population. Um, it's still rough out there for Copts, which is why there's a growing diaspora all over the world me being part of that diaspora. I, th- in listening to your podcast, even though I thought I knew a little bit, and I did a little, but just within 30 seconds, I was getting all new stuff. I did not know that it's part of the Orthodox tradition from Eastern Christianity. That's right. It's actually part of the Oriental family. So mm. it's still Eastern, but Oriental. So us and the Armenians and three more churches um, are in one family, and then there's the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, etc. And there's <laughs> there's several thousand years of history just in those few sentences. Lots of history back and forth. Uh, I'm wondering, Adela, we were just past Holocaust Remembrance Day, just a few days, and it's so interesting to me as we get further and further from some of those most recent events, how easy it is for people to mischaracterize or forget about them. Does that surprise you? I mean, it's it's sad, but not surprising. And um, I remember when I first stepped to a camp, 
um, the first time in my life I went to Terezin, which is in um, the Czech Republic. And there's a very different feeling seeing it when you're there in person and and you just feel a certain weight. And I, I was I was very lucky that I got to grow up uh, hearing from Holocaust survivors directly and and learning from them directly about the horrors of the Holocaust. Thank God no, no one in my family was affected. We were in the Middle East, so we we didn't get any of that, thank God. But um, it's not surprising. I think that if we don't keep history alive, it will be forgotten. And that's why um, it's on us, not not just Jewish people, but as humanity as a whole to remember these stories so they're not repeated, not against Jews and not against other groups. Well, amen. <laughs> amen. I can't argue with that. You, The two of you are doing something so interesting, which is being very true to your own culture while still being very uh, hospitably engaged with each other. I think we're both very dangerously curious people. <laughs> um, curiosity killed the cat, and we've definitely gotten ourselves into some icky situations personally and professionally. At least I can say I have because of how curious we are. But I think it's also what makes this project, Americanish, so interesting. How did you find each other and and decide we should both be in a room talking about our various <laughs> religious and cultural traditions? It's actually a very cute story. It's it's meet cute, if you're familiar with the term. I just <laughs> learned what that meant like earlier this year. Um, a mutual friend of ours, we were having two random conversations with her, and we were both talking about the Ottoman Empire out of all things to talk about, you know, casual light conversation. <laughs> Um, and she called me up and she told me, I met your soulmate, like the person I was just talking to. I was also talking about the Ottoman empire with her. And she was saying the exact same thing. And she did the same to Adela. And she's like, we need to get lunch together. Let's just talk. Like if nothing else, you two should meet. Um, oh, the first few episodes we did, our producer at the time told us to not talk outside of cameras. So to not discuss anything until the cameras were rolling. Mm. And it led to some really interesting moments. Uh, there was this moment in episode two where I was telling Adela about the Coptic tattoo, which I'm happy to explain. Um, but the gist of it is that we tattoo our children when we're young to be able to identify themselves. And it originates in that we were forced to tattoo our children because you had to identify yourself as a dimmi or a second-class citizen in ancient... in, in in the past. Um, so it just became a tradition where we turned something that was forced upon us to something that we embrace. And I just casually dropped something to Adele, like, you know, well, I got my tattoo when I was eight months old and it's this cross. <laughs> and she had to like take a minute and stop because she just could not wrap her head around tattooing babies, which does sound bizarre. I have to admit, <laughs> but it makes really good, interesting content. <laughs> One of the things that Mariam and I always love to say is like, not only do we get to learn about each other, but we get to learn about each other on screen. Because um, actually, before we filmed our first episode, we had only met three times, twice in person and once on Zoom. So really, when we're saying we're learning about each other, it really was learning about each other. And um, we get to share that with our own community. So I get to share Mariam with my community. Mariam gets to share me with her community. And um, the learning on screen about each other was definitely a process. It, the, the way we used to plan our episodes was we would pick a topic and we'd say, do you have something to say about this? And she'd be like, yep, you. And I'd be like, yep. And we'd have no idea <laughs> what the other was going to say. So we could have come in like, you know, guns blaring and clashed. But, you know, even though we disagreed, we've always been able to find common ground, respect. And uh, we haven't had any of those crazy moments where we say, you know, that this isn't working. No, it, it's it's really been a great learning opportunity to learn about other perspectives. I wonder if I could ask each of you, because you talk early on about maybe a time in your life where you thought you would distance yourself a little bit from the tradition. And in time, you each have reaffirmed that aspect of, of yourself. It's really interesting, the journey of immigrants particularly, because you live in two worlds at the same time. You're trying to or your parents are at least trying to make sure that you don't lose the language, you don't lose the faith, you don't lose the culture, but you're a young child and you want to assimilate because you want to dress the same way to like the kids in school. You want to be able to talk without an accent. You want to just fit in, whatever that means, whatever you identify that to mean. Um, so it does lend itself to 
a period in your life, and I think this is normal and healthy, we just don't talk about it. So people don't, or, or our kids don't know that it's normal and healthy, where you're rejecting, you're rejecting everything. You're rejecting your native tongue, you're rejecting your faith, you're rejecting your culture because it makes you unique and different. And as you grow older, you start to realize those are the things that who make, that make us who we are and make us special and make us lovable. And coming back to who you are, relearning who you are, and then learning to appreciate it and to add on it is really a beautiful journey. And it pains me when people don't find their way back because it usually means something traumatic happened to where they're actively resisting finding their way back to who they are. Um, but I'm really thankful I did because I, I I don't know who I would be, whether it's personally, professionally, um, without this part of my identity, being Egyptian, being Coptic, being Arab. I had the the honor and the privilege of growing up in a community of faith. So my family was in Mexico in a Syrian Jewish community, which is a very specific Jewish community. And then I moved to New Jersey and grew up in the same exact specific Jewish community, the Syrian Jewish community of New Jersey. So my traditions, my my traditional foods, customs, religion, everything was the same. And um, I, you know, growing up in high school, I always clashed heads and it wasn't until I got to college. And that was when I was in my rejection phase where I said, you know, like this is so limiting or it's this, or it's such a one-way view of seeing after about my first couple of months in college, I realized that faith is a superpower. And I think that one of the reasons why a lot of kids rebel is because they, they want answers and they want logic and they want all these specific things laid out perfectly. And it, it really takes stepping outside of the, the community of faith to realize that you might not necessarily have all the answers, but to me, that's that's what faith is. It gives you the 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 lack, the the hole that you'll never fill with words. Um, and and I I really I really appreciated it. And we both have younger sisters, and we talk about how our sisters are going to go through that phase. But um, ultimately, what you have to remember again is is coming back home. It's a sense of homecoming. I don't know about you guys, but when I enter a synagogue, it doesn't matter where I am in the world. It doesn't matter if it's exactly my kind of synagogue or a different kind. I feel a sense of homecoming and I feel comfort and I feel suddenly like I'm not just wandering. So uh, yes, we had our, our little rebellious phases, if we want to call them that. But ultimately, I'm really glad that um, this does define me and it's something that will always define me. What is it that makes you trust in or believe in a God or a higher power or the way you, what you would describe that as, is that possible to comment on? I think it's, it's more of, of a feeling. So for me, the, the thing that was lacking that, that, you know, thing that words can't fill um, to me is just the idea of connection, Um, you know, connection with God. A lot of people have a confidant that they talk to every day, you know, a significant other, a parent, a best friend. But, you know, in, in Judaism, we say Shema when we go to sleep. It's a, a blessing that you say at night, right before you go to bed. And my mom always taught me that you should pick one thing that you're grateful for when you go to sleep and you say Shema and you just kind of think about that thing that you're grateful for and you hope for something for the next day. And it kind of felt like talking to a friend because I'm recounting something I'm thankful for and I'm looking ahead to the next day. And that's usually what we do with conversation partners. Um, but there is something bigger. I, and I wish I could explain what it was. I think that it must be a very lonely and sad existence to think that that's it, that this is all there is, that there has to be something else. And um, it doesn't matter what faith you come from, Jewish, Christian, and talking to Mariam is what I realized overall. As long as you believe that there's something greater than humanity and that we all have a greater purpose, that's that's what it is for me. Mm, that's beautiful. And I love what your mother said about that something that you were grateful for. I've heard it said that allowing gratitude is the first step to receiving love for God. I agree. Mariam, have you always believed in a higher power? Have you always believed in God? I feel like ancient communities are like ours. Uh, there really isn't any other way to grow up, especially growing up in the Middle East, growing up in Egypt. Um, I think we have this weird luxury. I don't even know if calling it a luxury is, is proper in the West where we're able to shelf our faith. Like I can be Christian on Christmas and Easter and 
363 days of the year. <laughs> um, the rest of the year, you can kind of put your faith on a shelf and forget about it. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to outwardly express it in any way. And on a lot of parts of the world and most parts of the world, that's really not the case. Faith and your religion is a very big part of who you are, what you do, your name even, um, and how you see the world. Um, so I think I always grew up knowing that there was something more than this. Um, otherwise, I would be a nihilist. And I think I, I went through that phase as well. Um, if I had to point to one specific thing that really strengthens my faith is our survival as Christians. Um, there's no reason for the cops to have survived everything that they've survived. There's no reason for the Assyrians to have survived ISIS and every other trauma that has, they have experienced. There's no reason for the Armenians to exist in the middle of enemies facing you from every side, wanting to destroy you for hundreds of years at a time. Um, surviving, thriving, continuing to create and to exist is probably the most powerful sign for me that something beyond this exists. And it's, you know, our Lord and Savior and that he's allowing us to continue to experience life for, for his glory. The, the organization you're part of, Philos, uh, tell me what the organization does. Absolutely. The Philos Project is a wonderful organization based in New York, um, and we promote positive Christian engagement in the Near East. Um, that's a lot to break down, but I'll give you the, the abbreviated version. Um, our founder looked at the way that the West was interacting with the East and saw that there's a major problem um, in communication, in reporting, even something as simple as the news. All you see and think about when you hear the Middle East is bombs, terrorists, and that's about it. That's the end of the story. And there was a major disconnect because that part of the world is very important to the West, or at least should be, because it's without the East, we would be nothing. We would have no Hebraic traditions. We would have no ideas of democracy and existence in, in peace and flourishing and pluralism. So he wanted to connect East and West, and he wanted to do it in a very um, renewed way, renewed sense of interaction. Um, and that's what we do. And we do it through a couple of different avenues. I specifically uh, help lead the advocacy team. And we do a couple of different things, but primarily advocate for Eastern Christian minorities. So that includes people like the Copts and the Assyrians and the Maronites, but it also includes people like Ethiopian Jews and Baha'is and Yazidis and people who most people don't know anything about, but are important to this vision of a pluralistic future where we all can live side by side. Adela, you have a bit of activism in your history as well at NYU. Do you want yes, to talk to me about this? <laughs> of course. Um, well, when I went to NYU uh, as an undergraduate, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. It, it started off as political anti-Zionism, as you'll see on a lot of college campuses, but it very easily crossed the line into blatant anti-Semitism. It, it got to the point that Jewish students were being boycotted. There were resolutions against the Tel Aviv uh, campus at NYU on our student government. Professors were boycotting Israel. So it started with Israel and then individual students started being targeted. They started posting pictures of Jewish students, calling them the fascists of the week. Mm. They burned an Israeli flag. They assaulted and battered a Jewish girl. NYPD stepped in. And throughout all of this, I had been meeting with administrators who were telling me I was overreacting. And after um, the assault and the flag burning, I met with the administration again. And I said, please, like, you can't tell me I'm overreacting. You can't tell me I'm imagining non-existent threats right. and physical action taken against my community. What are you going to do about it? And um, the school decided not only not to do nothing, but they gave an award to the group that burned the flag and assaulted the girl. And after that, they refused to schedule a meeting with me for months. And um, I felt like my community wasn't being heard at all. So I got in touch with lawyers and I asked if I had a case against the school. This had been going on for years and the lawyers said no. <laughs> they said that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act didn't include religion as a protected category. So they said, look, honestly, we just don't think legally you'll have a battle. Um, I sent them everything I had anyway and they called me back about a day later and they said that it was the strongest case they had seen 
for anti-Semitism as a Title VI claim. So again, they told me legally, we don't think you'll win, but this can get the foot in the door for this. And they asked me if I was ready to become uh, the cornerstone for that. And I said, yes, where do I sign? I couldn't imagine graduating without doing this. So um, two weeks before I graduated, my lawsuit went public and it was officially filed with the Office of Civil Rights. And um, I graduated, thank God. And I spent the whole summer making publicity for my case. And one day I got a call from the White House. They invited me to speak at a conference in Miami with the president. I did. And three days later, he signed an executive order to include Judaism under Title VI protections. So it was a whirlwind of a time. All this happened in um, about a year. And then a year after that, NYU settled my lawsuit. The only thing I asked for in the suit was policy change to define anti-Semitism and to include it in existing discrimination policies at NYU. Wow. Uh, sometimes we spend decades trying to make changes. That's pretty impressive that mm -hmm. that could happen in, in a, that short a span of time. Yeah. Yeah, to, to be fair, this executive order had been in the works for, for a while. They just kind of needed something to pin it to. You just need something to attach it to. And my lawsuit came at an opportune time. And I think that everyone has a path in life. And I got very lucky that God just put mine in front of me. And it was just a decision of whether or not I take it. And um, I'm, I'm really grateful I did. Mariam, I'm wondering, what are contemporary issues that... All of these categories, the Egyptian, Coptic, Christian, are dealing with. What do you see your generation dealing with and and how do you see them coming out? Hmm. That's a really great question. Um, there's a couple different ways I can answer that. Obviously, there's internal problems within Egypt, and it's not just problems that face the Copts, but it's problems that face everybody. But there are uh, embedded ways that your neighbor gets a chance to persecute you. It's it's a different thing to have a state persecuting you. Um, you know, there's legal ways around that. You can change a system. You can change a bureaucracy, however hard it may be. But if your neighbor is the one that has, con you know, misconceptions about you as a faith group and thinks that you're an infidel and thinks you're a second-class citizen and thinks you're less Egyptian because you're a Christian and not a Muslim, uh, that's a very long road journey to, to change that. Um, if I'm talking about the diaspora, and like I said earlier, it's a very young diaspora. We're maybe 70 years Whereas the Jewish diaspora is as long as the Jewish is We've as old as the Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, with with a new Coptic diaspora, I think we're still trying to learn how to organize ourselves and how to advocate for our family members, um, both in the church and you know genetic family members back home. Uh, that's a new space we're trying to field and navigate, um, and I think it's going to take us a couple more decades to figure out. Uh, are you finding that some people are having a bit of knowledge that you exist as a group, Coptic Christians? It depends on the circles. Um, obviously, a lot more since we started doing Americanish and doing this work, which is really awesome. It's a, I don't know why I didn't think that would be an outcome of the show because I don't walk around like, I'm Coptic today. Like, it's just who I am. <laughs> um, but I guess people who hear those words for the first time, it's a new thing. Um, so that's really wonderful. I would love for everybody to, to know about my community and others like it. Adela, as a Syrian Jew, does that do you find that distinguishes you from other Jewish traditions or groups? Oh, absolutely. It, it's actually very funny because, again, I, I grew up in Mexico and I have cousins in Brazil and in Monaco and in London, and I, my family's all over the place. So I always traveled a lot to visit them. So I thought I was very worldly. And um, turns out I really only knew one kind of Jew. And then when I spoke to my mom, I realized, wow, Jews from Syria are in the minority. And I didn't know that. And then I found out Jews are a minority in general. And I also did not know that because I grew up in a very small community, right? A small, close-knit community. So I didn't really know what else was out there. I went to a Syrian Jewish school. All of my friends were Syrian Jews. And I, I, again, I just didn't know that there were European Jews. And then suddenly you show up to college and, you know, the, the European Jews are the majority of Jews. And then there's Sephardic, which is just Middle Eastern Jews, are, are a minority. And then within that minority, you have Syrian Jews. So end of the day, 
when it comes to Judaism, we we all have the same base, but similar to Christianity, we all kind of take it in our own direction. So um, our day-to-day traditions vary a little bit. The way that we pray varies a little bit. But one of the things that Mariam and I talk about a lot on the show is her being an Egyptian Christian and I am a Syrian Jew. So we both have that Middle Eastern link. So the way our, our families are, the way that we structure our families, that, that, that has a lot to do with where our communities were based that are not necessarily faith-based. So it's interesting because I could find a lot of commonality with Mariam, and sometimes I can find very little commonality with a European Jew who grew up in a completely different way from me. I love the Middle Eastern connection that you made there. I guess if I wanted to start a fight, I could ask um, which country invented hummus? <laughs> no, don't do this to right, us. So We've we're, been so no, good. We're not going to. We're, we're not going to go there. You can take, have that as a future episode and <laughs> take off the gloves, and we'll see. Behind the scenes debate. <laughs> yeah. This is in good faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. I'm I'm wondering, Mariam, there you tell this wonderful story in one of your podcast episodes of Americanish, where you're talking about being in Egypt and living among Muslim families, and that your family would often observe Ramadan because it just worked better to do that with the neighbors and back and forth. You have this story about a plate that I would love you to tell. <laughs> do you remember this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do, I do. It's hard to forget. Uh, so we were one of the only Coptic families in my father's village. So it meant that our interactions daily were with a lot of non-Christians, with Muslims, in fact. Um, so uh, around Ramadan time, it was just more comfortable to observe Ramadan. It doesn't mean we, you know, observed it to a T, but if you're a Copt walking around in the street and you know all of these people that you grew up with that have you know, lived long their whole lives by your side, can't drink water and can't have food in 104 degree weather, you just might not take a sip of water right then and there and wait till you get inside a house or something. Um, But we had this plate and uh, I don't remember whose plate it was, but for Ramadan, it's very traditional. And for even Coptic holidays, it's very traditional to like make a lot of food as Middle Easterners do, and then send a plate of the food over to the neighbor's house. So for Ramadan, the plate would just be constantly back and forth, and we completely forgot who started this tradition. But whatever you were making that day, you always knew to make a little bit extra because you were sending some over next door. And my mom still does it to this day in New York with her neighbors. There's a plate, and it goes around. I think that's just a beautiful tradition and also a a nice would-be metaphor for how we could how we could understand each other better. What have you gotten back from your audience as a podcast or or what are you hoping that they're getting? Ooh, um, what have we gotten back? We've gotten back a lot of feedback, which is always so nice. We're, this is very experimental. A Copt from Egypt and a Syrian Jew have never interacted in this way on a public level ever, to my knowledge. Um, so I think we're getting a lot of feedback on how to best communicate ourselves, our cultures with each other. And I think that's been really helpful because obviously we're friends, but this is a public platform that people listen to. Um, what we hope to get back or what I hope to get back is more interaction between our communities. They're not communities that naturally um, gravitate towards each other for so many reasons. But through our interactions, you see very quickly and obviously, that they have a lot in common and there's a lot to share there. Adela? Yeah, I'd say my favorite thing that we've gotten back are messages from people in communities I had never heard of, like people who are like, oh, like I'm a, you know, Tunisian XYZ or I'm a, you know, this or that kind of Christian. And like everyone's just like messaging us and commenting on our videos like, all of their Americanish identities. Or we had an episode where we talk about all of these different things that we are and how hard it is to explain to people when they say, Where are you from? And we just kind of sit there and say, 
uh, well, where am I from? And we have this existential <laughs> crisis. And it's so interesting to see how many people from completely different backgrounds are saying, oh, my mom's Russian and I was born in Puerto Rico and now I live in Miami. And it's like, oh, well, there we go. Another Americanish, uh, Americanish person, another Americanish story. Mariam Waba and Adela Kohab are podcast hosts of the podcast Americanish. What a delight to hear from them. First of all, they talk faster than I can think. And so I am kept on my toes by these two, which I really like. And my favorite moment was just towards the end there, where we hear the story that Mariam shares about being one of maybe the only Christian in their neighborhood. And everyone else is celebrating Ramadan. And so how they sort of help out and they'll send over food. And then that plate, they don't even remember which family it first came from. That plate gets passed back and forth and back and forth. It's just a tradition. And boy, if that could be a little metaphor for how we can literally feed each other, but also just find ways of knowing about and respecting each other's traditions without feeling threatened ourselves. Yeah, wonderfully illustrated that chance to participate in someone else's faith without appropriating their faith. Yeah, I think that's so yeah. important. And I think uh, for a lot of us, when we see um, especially Jewishness or, or Jewish identity, um, I think a lot of people feel familiar with that. They they've seen that um, in the movies. They've had they've heard the history. Maybe they've studied. Maybe as Christians, they've studied the Bible, and they sort of feel like, oh, I know a lot. But one of the things, um, Steve, that you pointed out was, I thought I knew something about this, but just listening to your podcast, right? I learned so much in thirty seconds, and there's just such a benefit of hearing from people. Uh, talking about their own experience, um, and even the really difficult ones. So, for instance, Adela talks about visiting uh, the Holocaust camps in Europe and what that experience was like for her. And I think that's important for us to hear. Israel actually has an established program of sending high school students to Poland to visit the Holocaust sites. And they get to hear, at least for a few more years until they're all gone, from actual survivors to be able to share that. In the interest of just knowing what it's like to be human and how we can learn to get along, we have to learn from our mistakes. Uh, my dear friend, Asher Ashkenazi, uh, is from Jerusalem. He was born there. He lives just outside there. He's going to tell us about sending his own children on one of these trips, and he goes along on one of them, and why he thinks it's so important. Asher has been a licensed Israeli guide for over 35 years, graduated from Hebrew University of Jerusalem with degrees in history and international relations. He taught history at Hebrew University and participated in archaeological digs at various sites in Israel, among them Beit Shan, the huge Roman excavation. He knows his history. They started about 40 years ago. 1983 was where the very first of those uh, Holocaust educational missions went to Poland. And uh, the goal is, I would say, first of all, to learn about the Holocaust, to learn about the uh, uh, systematic mass murders, you know, mass extermination of mm. six, million, six million Jews. I would say the main goal is the main goals are to strengthen the Jewish identity to strengthen their uh, connection to their past, to the Jewish history, to Jewish uh, heritage, solidarity with the Jewish people, and to preserve the memory of the Holocaust, which is very important. Also, of course, the importance of uh, democracy, to protect uh, democracy, to fight against uh, racism. And when those mm -hmm. kids come back to Israel, you know, they come back with usually with a stronger uh, sense of belonging, both to the Jews and also to their land in Israel. So describe these trips to me. Who goes and what are they doing? It's uh, for a week, sponsored by the Ministry of Education. The participants are uh, high school students, usually between 16, 18 years old, 11th and 12th uh, grade. Usually it's their teachers who escort them. Besides their teachers, they will also be guides, actually authorized by both the Ministry of Education and Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is Israel's World Holocaust Memorial Center. And also Holocaust survivors. Holocaust survivors 
will also escort those goods for a whole week. They will explain on the site during the trip. And it's very important, you know, that they hear those stories actually firsthand from the Holocaust survivors. And usually those trips are around uh, Warsaw, Krakow, Lublin. They visit extermination camps. They also try to learn about the rich Jewish cultural and spiritual life in Poland back, you know, before the, before the Holocaust, like visiting synagogues, cemeteries, Jewish quarters, etc. And how impressive to be able to take a tour and be met by a survivor. There aren't many of those left. Israel went through a, what the scholars call Holocaust repression. The survivors, for a pretty long time, they did not want to talk. They don't want to share their testimony. They don't, they don't want to talk about what they went through, about this immense uh, tragedy and uh, the depths of the horrors and there being, you know, the... Besides that, also, you know, a lot of dehumanization. They're deprived of their right. human dignity. They did not want to talk about it. And the second generation, their children, most of them also refused to listen to their parents, you know. And that actually continued, I would say, for the last 30, 35 years after Israel was established. We realized that they should be, the Holocaust survivors would be talking, you know, their numbers are decreasing. And it's so important, you know, to hear from them firsthand about those atrocities and what happens. You were, you're a professional tour guide. Have you guided these tours to Poland too? Yes. What I did a few times was taking groups to, uh, to Poland. I did that actually during the week of the Holocaust uh, Memorial Day. And, you know, during this week of the Holocaust Memorial Day, actually there is a, a March of the Living in Poland. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Well, the March of the Living, in contrast with the death marches in the Poland, during the end of the Second World War, before the war came to an end, as the Nazis were withdrawing from the death camps, they actually forced the inmates to march towards the West for hundreds of miles. And many of those inmates who were already exhausted and sick from oppressive work and the terrible conditions, many of them actually died on the way. And those who stayed behind or lagged behind were shot. So today we have the symbolic March of the Living from Auschwitz to Birkenau, symbolic march. Actually, we... We say loudly that we, you know, even though we lost one third of our people, here we are, we survived, we came back to our land, we're rebuilding ourselves on the ashes of the Holocaust. And I escorted those March of the Living in Poland, and then those groups usually came to Israel to continue you know, their trip in Israel. I think it's wonderful that these high school age kids, 16 and up, get this experience. They need to get that at that age. Are they old enough to fully understand it? Will they understand better later? Um, I think they are. You know, like 11th and 12th grade, they will go through educational, emotional, behavioral preparation before they go there. I would say Holocaust became a part of the Jewish identity. It actually filtered, it was filtered down in the Jewish consciousness. So I think they're old enough. Look, the Israeli uh, youth, young generation, who grows up and lives in their own independent state freely, you know, they have no idea about anti-Semitism. They uh, have hard time understanding this hatred or the prejudices by many people against the Jews. So by going there, and visiting those sites where those atrocities took place, when they come back, you know, they come back, first of all, with a, with a stronger sense of belonging, belonging to, to the Jewish people, belonging to their land, Israel. You have two daughters and then your youngest son. First, I want to ask about your daughter's experience because they went with school groups. What did they talk about when they came home? What did they remember from that? What impressed them? My daughters, when they came back, for example, actually they told me 
that by being there, they actually realized how important Israel was. Actually, they perceived Israel as a guarantee against the Second Holocaust. Hmm. When my younger daughter was in Poland, and she called me uh, one day, she said they were waiting in line to enter a uh, Zoom meeting. And there was a man who came up and who approached them and asked them, where are you from? And my younger daughter, Ella, you know, said, we're from Israel. And he says, you mean you're Jews? You're Jewish? And my, naturally, my younger daughter, yeah, of course we're Jewish, says. Most of Israel, you know, are Jews. And then he said a few words in, in Polish, which did not sound very nice, you know. And, mm. and my daughter called me. I said, Dad, why did this man didn't like us? Why did he sound like they were, he was cursing us? And I told him, that's exactly why we censured <laughs> to understand what the Jewish people. Mm. Your son... You ended up going with him. What was that like to be there with one of your children and go through those places? It was very important to uh, take my son there. I think every, I think that's something everybody should be doing. You know, we should always we should always try to remember the I would say the dark, the evil capabilities of the of the human beings and educate the future generations. Hoping and believing that if, you know, they know, they learn about it, they know about it, they will remember. And we hope that we shall remember, we shall never forget. And to make sure that something uh, similar never happens again. So historically, Jews were allowed to leave Germany or Poland, but they had no place to go. Is that right? We say if Israel existed before the Holocaust, we could prevent this from uh, taking place, from uh, those atrocities from uh, taking place. But if you remember, till January 1941, theoretically, the Jews were allowed to leave the Nazi-controlled uh, Germany. The problem was not so much leaving, the problem was where to go, because nobody wanted to accept them. You know, there were desperate refugees trying to find a place, you know, to go, and nobody wanted to accept them. And also Israel is perceived also as a as a safe haven, as a, as a home for the Jewish people. So when they come back, they realize how important it is for the Jewish people to have a home, a home which is ready to accept any Jew from anywhere. Actually, it's our law of return. Israel's basic law is law of return. Any Jew who decides to come back home, they can do it. They can do it, and they will actually become a part of Israel. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. There are people that I have met who, after World War II, said to themselves, there cannot be a God because no God would allow what has happened to my family or anyone's family. There are other people who came through that experience, and it seems like they held on to their faith or or committed to their faith. I don't know what makes the difference. Do you have any commentary about that? Because I can't blame people who trusted more in God, and I certainly can't blame people who saw what happened and feel like they don't know if they could trust or believe in a God. You know, I would say one uh, one of the reasons that the Jewish people actually, many of them decide not to not to escape or to run away or to fight back, was because of their strong faith in God. Mm-hmm. You know, they could not, they could not believe, they want to believe that something, those atrocities, you know, those terrible, uh, immense tragedies could not, God would not let those events take place. You know, they were believers. Let me remind you, many of those Jews who perished in the Holocaust were religious Jews, Orthodox Jews. And in many cases, their rabbis actually did not encourage them to leave in many countries, in many cities. So they stayed there, uh, strongly believing that something 
Something like that could never happen. Every time things got worse and worse and worse, they said they cannot get worse anymore. They cannot get worse than that. Each time there was a situation. Yes. And uh, I know some Holocaust survivors who actually uh, lost their faith. Lost their faith. But some actually, you know, continued. I'm curious if this idea of never again and the Holocaust, is that just as strong whether as a Jew you are orthodox and practicing or reform or conservative or completely secular? Do they all share that awareness of the necessity for education? I would say the overwhelming, uh, almost every Israeli shares the same. As I said, nowadays we realize how important it is to teach, to educate the new uh, generation and to encourage the Holocaust survivors, to speak out, to tell their testimonies. Mm. For example, you visited the Yad Vashem, you know, Israel's uh, World Holocaust Remembrance Center, which has a historical museum, as you know. And the historical museum was renovated maybe about uh, 25 years ago. And the reason behind this, the former historical museum went in a chronological order, explaining, you know, teaching about the Holocaust, different chapters in the history of the Holocaust. But something very important was missing. The survivors was missing, were missing. You would not hear, you would not see, you would not hear the survivors speak out, tell their testimonies, tell firsthand those atrocities, what they went through. We realized that was a big mistake. Then we decided to renovate, to reorganize the historical museum. And today, if you remember, when you visit the historical museum, a lot of emphasis is put on the survivors. You always hear them speak out, talk about about themselves, what they went through, which is something, you know, their numbers are decreasing. And as you said, even today, relatively such a short time, you know, after, after this happens, many people are denying it. So it's, again, Israel is really uh, today encouraging, you know, the survivors to speak out and to tell their testimonies. Being able to see those faces and, and see these people who have lived now and they're in their, at the time of that they were videotaped, they were in their 70s, their 80s, sometimes older, sharing their stories and their remembrances. But there's something triumphant about knowing that they did live, that they have descendants too, most of them. I think that's really beautiful. What can we do here in the U.S. or in any country to be sure something like the Holocaust doesn't happen again, whether it's anti-Semitism or to any other group. I strongly believe that it's very important to remind the people and to teach and, and to remind the people about the, as I said, the dark and the evil capabilities and capacities of the human beings, what they're able to do. And to future generations, you know, to, to educate with the Future generations, I think it's very important you know, to, to educate the generations. And uh, one of the best ways to educate the Israeli youth is, is actually through those trips to Poland. Mm. It's a very um, a deep experience, very hard, very sad and shocking. But I think it's very important for them we say never again. And when we say that, we mean it, we'll do all. We know we shall do all we can to make sure something similar doesn't take place again. That's Asher Ashkenazi talking about the Holocaust education program in Israel, where he sent his children, as high school students do there, to Poland to experience and hear the stories of those who survived those concentration camps. One thing that really struck me was how he said they could leave until 1941 from the European countries but people were not willing to accept them. Yeah. And that kind of blows my mind, but then we think about immigration debates in all around the world even today. At one point, he really stressed that we don't want to forget about the past. That's part of the program to introduce the students to that so they don't forget about what happened so it doesn't happen again. And then the thing of it is, in Poland, they were in a safe space, but there was a tolerance for anti-Semitism and that tolerance turned to persecution. It was very interesting because Adela had mentioned that there was a tolerance for anti-Semitism at NYU towards some of the Jewish students. And she stepped in and had them change the policy so that that 
tolerance for anti-Semitism didn't turn into persecution again. Yeah, I I really appreciate what you're saying here, Tanya. And for me, you know, listening to Asher talk about the darkness that um, humans can commit, we need to be aware of it. We need to be cognizant of it. I think that's really important. But I have to say, listening to Mariam and Adela, I just was filled with all this hope because of their enthusiasm and because of their energy um, and the way they're sort of tackling these issues, not only by uh, fighting back when they need to fight back, but sort of proactively introducing the world to who they are, what their concerns are, um, and how they uh, are, you know, part of, as I said before, the American story. And there's just so much to learn if we will just listen to people with curiosity instead of to prove I'm right or whatever it might be. We ask the question that anyone would ask in this show, how do we stop this from happening in the future? And of course, education is part of it. But then we just move on and we haven't really solved the problem. We're just asking the question that we all ask. And the sad truth is, as much as we say never again, it's already happened in Serbia, in Bosnia, in Rwanda, and places around the world. And as people of faith, every faith has a directive to honor the divinity within our fellow human beings. So all of us, men and women of faith, have this obligation to try and help people, to heal people, to respect people as equal with us, and yet as human beings over and over, when the refugees from these experiences start showing up, just like in World War II, we don't want them, is what we often hear. That's cause for reflection for all of us as people of faith. Thanks to Mariam, thanks to Adela, and thank you to Asher, all of them, for sharing their personal experience, kind of what they've learned and why what they do is important to them that's proved to be important for other people too. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinich. Our sound designers were Daniel Phillips and Dallin Jepson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, we hope you leave a comment or review where you get your podcast. Or better yet, share an episode with a friend. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod, on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.